This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Associate Professor Lawrence Sanders presents a clear approach when seeing patients with migraines. Learn about the EQUIP approach and how to implement non-pharmacological strategies for migraine prevention and also a comprehensive overview of current, new and future pharmacological agents for the treatment and prevention of migraines. Uh, Professor Sanders, tell us about yourself. Thank you very much. So I'm an Associate Professor of Neurology at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and with the University of Melbourne. I have subspecialty expertise in both stroke and headache specialty and also neuromuscular, so a little bit of everything. I have an academic and research background. I have a PhD in stroke, but over the recent years, I've really fallen in love with helping people with headache and migraine, and I'm currently the co-secretary of the Australian New Zealand Headache Society. Now, Lauren, I believe that we had a previous um, podcast where we covered diagnosis and acute management of migraine. Today, we're looking at migraine prevention. So why don't I just give you the floor and take over? Certainly. And thank you to everybody who's listening, because I'm sure all of you are aware that migraine is more than just a headache but there is still a lot of stigma in the community that goes with migraine, despite it being a leading cause of neurological disability. But it's a really common encounter. And often as a neurologist who works in headache, by the time people get to me in the headache clinic, they're often really disabled by their migraine. They've let it go a long time. They may have been through a number of things that haven't worked, or often they've also not been through all the things that do have some evidence behind them. So there's a lot that can be done to actually limit the need for people to seek specialist care. And there's some of the tips and tricks that I'd really like to go through in terms of migraine prevention today. I think one of the key things is really getting in early and anything more than four or five headache days a month is enough to start thinking about prevention. And really prevention can be considered from both a pharmacological approach, but also a non-pharmacological approach. And when I'm starting my headache consultation, I have a structure that has worked for me over the years and I follow EQUIP. So the E stands for empowerment. And a lot of people have faced a lot of stigma around their migraine. And by the time they get to me, they're often feeling quite hopeless Mm -hmm. and like nobody has listened to them or that nothing has worked. Mm -hmm. And so I will often start the consultation by setting some goals around let's work towards you controlling your migraine and Mm -hmm. not your migraine controlling you. So not necessarily aiming straight up for headache freedom, 
but really aiming to reinstate some control over the disease process for that individual. Then the cue for me in Equip is quality of life. And it's really important before I start talking about treatments and therapies and options for my patients that I understand the impact on their quality of life. And often this will be the first time that patients have had the opportunity to explain how disabling their disease is and the brain fog that goes in between their attacks or the anxiety that goes with not knowing when the next attack is going to occur. And I find that if I haven't got that understanding of the impact on the individual's quality of life, mm -hmm. and I can't really tailor therapy to that person. At that point, there then becomes a bit of education. So my you in Equip is actually understanding and helping the person with the migraine to understand that for them, migraine is not just a headache. They usually know it, but understanding how their migraine is presenting, what some of the symptoms mean, why they need to be in a dark room with sunglasses and turn the TV down. And that's actually part of the migraine process. It's not just the headache. Um, empowering them to understand that there may be different phases to their migraine, that there may be hormonal associations, understanding what their triggers and what their treatments may be. So that then allows me to move on to my eye once I've decided that this is in, in fact migraine and Prof Stark has gone through how to, to diagnose that. But the eye for me is the individualized attack plan. And I consider this like you would consider an asthma management plan that every patient should have a migraine management plan for their attack days mm -hmm. and, and how that's individualized. And then the P is what I'm going to focus on today, which is practical prevention. And we can't just give our patients random um, vague ideas and concepts. It, it really needs to be tailored to that individual. And in fact, I will often start with the non-pharmacological measures when I'm talking about prevention strategies for my patients, because it also allows me to understand more about that person. And then I tend to do the medication side of things last. Sometimes that's a bit variable because some people really want to talk about their medications first, and we need to build rapport that way before we start talking about non-farm measures. And the big three that I talk about in non-pharmacological management of migraine are sleep, yes. stress and anxiety, and hydration. And it would be really uncommon for me to see a person with poorly controlled migraine or chronic migraine where all of those three things are really well controlled as a starting point. And often patients have already identified those as issues to me when I'm exploring their quality of life component. I think at this point, it is important just to remember that in migraine, we do classify episodic and chronic migraine. It is arbitrary, um, but high frequency episodic migraine is where you're having more than a few attacks a month, but not quite having 15 days a month of headache, um, eight of which are migraine. Once we get over those 15 days, um, then it is con considered a chronic migraine if you've got eight migraine days and 15 headache days. And that does have implications for when you're choosing medications. Mm -hmm. But thinking through those three big things, I'll often start with hydration because it's an easier one to start to talk about with patients. And it's really interesting. There seem to be two ends of the spectrum. People either, yes, I drink three litres a day. I'm all over having my drink bottle with me or I get to the end of the day and I'm never thirsty. And it absolutely staggers me the number of people with migraine who seem to have a broken thirst mechanism. They don't just don't have this drive to drink throughout the day. Um, and so we'll talk about the importance of hydration 
particularly given our understanding that the prodrome phase of migraine can cause a diuresis. So people may actually head into their migraine attack underhydrated, um, let alone the general hydration throughout the day that's really important for our bodies. And the way that I'll talk to people about it when they say to me, oh, yeah, I'll have two glasses of water a day, is that when people come into hospital with heart failure, we restrict them to 1.5 litres a day. So for our bodies, one and a half litres is actually considered a restriction. And then we might talk through some of the strategies around how do I practically increase my water intake and maybe it needs to be a graded increase. I have some patients who have drink bottles where they set, they mark it with the time so they can look at their drink bottle and go, oh, it's three o'clock. I'm not up to my three o'clock line yet. Or they might set their smartphone or their watch to beep at them. Or if their, their Fitbit tells them to stand up and move, they have a, a drink of water at that stage as well. So we'll talk through some practical ways of increasing hydration. The next thing I will often talk about is sleep. And it is really common for people to have poor quality sleep. And so it's not just about the quantity of sleep that people are having, it's the quality of sleep. And so I will often ask people, when you wake up in the morning, do you feel refreshed? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then the odds are that this person is not having a good quality of sleep. And if they're not getting into really good sleep cycles, they're not going to have a refreshing sleep. And we know that poor sleep is associated with an exacerbation of migraine. So we will talk through that. And sometimes it's at that point that you actually unmask that they have untreated sleep apnea um, and that they might have migraine, but they're also getting headaches typically in the morning. And we need to treat some of those other underlying factors. There's been a lot of evidence, as I'm sure uh, people listening today will know more recently around strategies for good, um, good sleep quality. And I'll often go through some practical tips for my patients as well, working out are you waking up during the night or is it difficulty getting to sleep? What's the problem with sleep that may have already been identified? Technology is our foe at times. Uh, people on their smartphones or laptops or tablets in bed, we know that anything in the hour or two before bed is going to disrupt our sleep-wake cycle because it, it stimulates the retina to keep thinking that it's daytime and we keep secreting our daytime hormones. And that means that we get into a deeper sleep too late in the evening for it to get through the appropriate cycles for us to have a restorative sleep. So banning the technology before bed. And sometimes you do need to give people some examples of what an alternative may be because it can be really hard to put those devices away. Even if they're, you know, oh, but I've got my blue light filter or, or whatever the case may be, it really just needs to be before bed is time to wind down. So the, some of those strategies, um, the simple things that we find hard to do, but actually work, making sure the room's a good temperature, that it's dark, that you're comfortable, you've got a good pillow, uh, having a good bedtime routine, those same things seem to help. And then if people are waking up and can't get back to sleep, getting up and sitting in a chair for 20 minutes and then trying to get back to sleep again rather than lying in bed awake because then our bodies tend to associate bed with lying in bed and being awake rather than being asleep and having a good quality sleep. So I'll often spend quite a bit of time um, for people who identify poor sleep quality as one of um, the contributing factors for their, for their migraine and for quality of life in general. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the other um, component that I would consider really important, particularly coming through the pandemic, has been stress and anxiety. And this is just 
skyrocketed. For some people with migraine, it's actually been a little bit of a blessing in disguise because they've been able to reevaluate workplace setup and some people have now been able to work from home and found that that is beneficial for other people. This has been really disruptive and it's, it's pretty individualised. But working out for people, where are the stresses in your life? What is within your control and what's not within your control where you need to work out your responses to the stressors in your life? And again, coming up with some strategies, giving mums the, the okay to get the kids to help out with the dishes. It's amazing how many people feel they need to do it all, but it's actually, you don't have to do it all. It's If your children can pitch pitch in in the kitchen, well, they should pitch in in the kitchen is my approach to it. And, and talking through some of those, those practical aspects for things as well. It's very individualized. There are so many different approaches to stress management and GPs are actually very well placed to lead people in deciding what works best for them. And I will often ask people to go back to their general practitioner to discuss strategies and to maintain that element of their migraine management because it really is important in migraine prevention. They're the big non-pharmacological things. I'll often touch on diet or exercise or, or some of those other things. And in fact, on our Headache Society website, the Australian New Zealand Headache Society, we have a handout that does go through a lot of those non-pharmacological and lifestyle measures, which is free to download and people can share that with their patients. So that's the non-pharmacological side of things. Lawrence, how effective or what part do these uh, very simple measures play? They're really important as a multifactorial approach. Over the years, I have had some patients who will respond to this alone. Mm -hmm. And that's something the expectations need to be discussed with that person as well. Some people just don't like the concept of medication and they will try absolutely everything. And if all of these are attended to really well, sometimes it works but not always. And sometimes we do need medications to break the cycle and then we can maintain it with lifestyle measures. It depends where in their episodic, high frequency episodic or chronic phase of their condition, the individual happens to be um, and tailoring it to that person, but they can be very effective. And wow. usually the medications are ineffective if we don't add the non-pharmacological approaches. All right, now take us up the next cog. So the next step is thinking about the preventative medications. And up until recently, it really was very much trial and error. It still is a bit of trial and error at times, but we were repurposing medications on the most part that had been developed for other conditions. Mm -hmm. And given that progress of how we've gotten to migraine prevention therapies, it does tend to be that we choose the way that we start migraine preventers based on the individual's comorbidities and the expected side effect profile. So one of the common medications that we will start is sandomigran or pazodifin, which is a migraine-specific medication. Um, the main side effects for this can be weight gain at higher doses. So I tend to be a little bit more conservative with initiating that when people already have obesity as a comorbidity, but it also can cause a little bit of sleepiness. So if people aren't sleeping well, it's given at nighttime and that can actually be a beneficial side effect. And other than that, it's actually a very well-tolerated medication. So for people who are very concerned about side effects of starting a medication, that's one that I'll often go for. For patients who have high blood pressure, then we can use a number of the antihypertensives. 
Mm-hmm. Pandesartan is actually a really effective migraine preventer, but it tends to need to be in the range of around 16 to 32 milligrams before we start to see a real beneficial effect. It should be a class effect, but I've got to say I've really only seen it with candesartan. And I've had one patient who responded at eight milligrams uh, quite well, but usually we try to up titrate to the higher doses. We've also got then propranolol, which has been around for ages. It it can be a bit annoying for patients because you often need to take it a couple of times a day and not everybody will tolerate it. But if people have a little bit of anxiety, the beta blockade effect can be beneficial. Um, Similarly, you just have to be a little bit careful of side effects in in patients who have asthma. Verapamil is another one that I would use quite a bit of. Um, So slow release verapamil, calcium channel blocker. Main side effect is constipation, uh, but that can be another really effective one. The main complication or side effect that I see with that is some people find that the blockade means they can't exercise quite as well as they could when they're not taking it, but it's a little bit of trial and error. We also have our anti-seizure, anti-epileptic medications, sodium valproate, um, obviously the side effect there, weight gain, so you have to choose that carefully. And topiramate is another one that we would use a lot of in migraine. It is uh, authority streamline code specifically for migraine. Drawback is that it's a twice a day dose, but benefit is that it can cause weight loss. Uh, Most of my patients either tolerate topiramate or they don't. Um, Some people get the paresthesias with it and need to stop it. Some people find that causes brain fog. But typically, if people we're getting through a couple of the classes and people have obesity, it's one that I will go to mm-hmm. um, because of the, the beneficial side effect from topiramate as well. And then we have antidepressants as well. Endep or amitriptyline is sort of a, a tried and true one that we, we often pull out of the bag. Um, the one reason I like amitriptyline is it can be up titrated in really small doses less happy using it in the elderly it's good if people aren't sleeping very well because it can really help get a much better depth of sleep but obviously we want to be a little bit cautious in older men with their prostate issues um, and can obviously cause dry mouth as well and then the other antidepressant that i would use quite a bit of is actually venlafaxine effexor Um, And I use that typically if patients report a high level of anxiety (laughs) as well with their migraine. I only had a couple of people who couldn't tolerate that, but it's really about targeting the therapy to the individual. For patients who don't like prescription medications, we can look at things like riboflavin. So 400 milligrams vitamin B2. There was a moderate sized French study that showed that this can be beneficial in in decreasing the frequency and severity of migraine. So that's something that you can try in people who don't particularly like prescription medications. Just warn people it's a B vitamin so it will turn their urine fluoro yellow and not to get a a fright first time they pee after having had it. Um, Magnesium is another one that I will go to quite commonly and I will often add that to the others anyway. Um, people often have a lot of stress and tension in their muscles when they have migraine and it's a really good um, muscle recovery aid irrespective of its migraine properties but there's certainly some evidence around uh, using magnesium and and people often happy to try that and so they might say well look I'm going to go and increase my hydration I'm going to really work on my sleep 
I'm going to start, you know, taking the dog for a walk every day. So I've got some me time and I'll, I'll add in my magnesium. And if I haven't got any improvement, then I'll come back and we can talk about the other uh, mm-hmm. pharmacological strategies. I love this approach. <laughs> it's just such a gentle, so individual. And it also takes into account the patient's needs and concerns. And I think that's really what people are wanting, mm. particularly with migraine when it's an invisible disease a lot mm. of the time because in between attacks, people may not look unwell or there's this culture often along people uh, amongst people with migraine that they tend to push on. And you'll ask them questions like, does your migraine stop you doing anything? And they're like, no, because I keep pushing on and they do everything to keep going. And that's why I think it is exciting that we've had some more recent advances in the field around prevention that are actually targeted to the migraine mechanism. Uh, As a preventer, we've had Botox around or botulinum toxin around for quite some time now. And uh, we we do uh, know that that is quite effective. The, The drawback of it is that it is a lot of needles. So if people have a needle phobia, that can be a little bit confronting. It's just over 30 sites, 155 units is our standard protocol mm-hmm. um, around that. And then that's given every three months. But you have to have failed three of the preventers before you're eligible on the PBS for Botox. This health ed educational segment is supported by Beatrice. The views expressed by the experts are entirely their own. Lauren, is there one of those fatigue uh, effects with Botox over time? So Botox often will take a couple of cycles before it becomes fully effective. So if it's not tip top after the first cycle, we'll often give a second cycle. Mm. Um, There can be development of neutralizing antibodies over Mm. time and that that can limit the effectiveness. Um, I suspect that increasing frequency or severity is just the markers not working as well. Yes. And then I guess we're lucky now that we've got the newer agents on the market. Well, tell us when we should consider it, because before, um, earlier on, you had said that knowing what sort of migraine pattern they have can help you choose. So how does that help you move and choose the right agent? So in order to access the more migraine-specific medications that we have now, which are the monoclonal antibodies against CGRP or calcitonin-gene-related peptide, you have to have failed three of the other preventers, which is a little bit frustrating that we have to go through these non-specific might-work medications before we can get to something that's specifically targeted. Um, and then again, when people have got to that point where it's, it's going to be either Botox or CGRP therapy that they're eligible for, I give them a choice mm-hmm. and I will go through it um, with them. So the CGRP monoclonal antibodies that we have, um, there's two self-injection therapies and then there's one infusion therapy. And I'll often show people the injectors um, and let them see the devices, talk through that with them. And then they can choose between Botox or their injectable therapy. Sometimes we're changing from Botox to a CGRP, or maybe the other way that we've started with a CGRP hasn't been effective. So we choose to, to try Botox um, as well. It does work slightly differently, although it does still target CGRP. And that gives people more choice. Can you tell us a little bit more about the CGRPs? 
Yeah, so this is one of the most exciting things that has happened to us in headache medicine. Um, most of the preventers, as I, as I mentioned before, 2018 were non-specific, And in fact, over 80% of patients would discontinue their preventer within one year, either due to side effects or to it being ineffective. And the CGRPs, we're having people coming back and saying, I've got my life back. People are starting to have headache-free days, whereas they may have had chronic migraine with no headache-free days for many months, if not years. And so in migraine, we actually have changes within the functional connectivity with, that are initiated centrally within the brain. Um, and this leads to um, activation of the efferent innervation into the meninges, which triggers a release of CGRP or calcitonin gene-related peptide. And this is really important in, the why, in why CGRP monoclonal antibodies work, because this triggering of CGRP release causes uh, vasodilation and a neuroinflammation at the level of the meninges. And that's what leads to the migraine pain. And then all of that is, is fed back via the trigeminal cervical complex into the thalamus and the cortex. But CGRP mostly works peripherally um, at triggering these flow-on effects. And the migraine-specific um, medications that we have now um, actually work at this CGRP molecule release so the, the two that are the injectables are galcanesumab and fremenesumab, and they actually are monoclonal antibodies that bind to the CGRP ligand and prevent it from binding to its receptor. So mm. this whole pathway is curtailed by that effect. So one thing to be aware of is also the dosing uh, regimen for the CGRPs, because this can help patients in their decision-making the first CGRP that we had available in Australia was Irenumab, and that's actually no longer available. That didn't get through PBS, and that was actually to the CGRP receptor. But the two injectable therapies that we have at the moment, there's galcanesumab, and that starts as a 240 milligram loading dose, and this comes in an auto-injector, and after that, it's, it's 120 milligrams monthly as a subcutaneous injection. Freeminesumab is the other injectable therapy that we have available. This comes as a pre-filled syringe and it can be 225 milligrams monthly or it can be 675 milligrams quarterly. So some patients will prefer the quarterly dosing. And then there's eptinezumab, which is a quarterly IV infusion. And it can actually start as early as 24 hours, mm. whereas the other injectables tend to take a week to maybe a few weeks to start to kick in. So it is sometimes the dosing that will help patients to choose. Patients who don't like to think about their um, injections tend to go for the auto-injector. People who like to have control of the speed of the injection tend to go for the pre-filled syringe. Wow. What does functional connectivity, I mean, you, they all sounded like should make sense <laughs> to me, but it didn't. Yes. So migraine actually begins centrally and the connections so the functional connections, the way that the neurons actually talk to each other is disrupted. And this is between the hypothalamus and the upper brainstem and then the trigeminal cervical complex. And if we start to think about those structures and what we know about hypothalamus, about the rostral brainstem and about the trigeminal cervical complex, we start to see parts of why we see the symptoms that we get in migraine. So if we think about neck discomfort and we think about unilateral headache pain, it kind of makes sense if we think about trigeminal cervical disruption. 
And if we think about the brain fog and the fatigue that people get, well, that kind of starts to make sense if we think about where these disconnects are coming. And so that's why we get so many symptoms beyond just the headache in migraine as well, because there's actually this functional disconnection that's mediated centrally in the brain. How does a GP, if you like, um, think about talking to the patients about these medications? Uh, or is this a decision uh, that's made by the specialists and the patient? So the CGRP monoclonal antibodies and also um, some of the uh, therapeutic device therapies that I haven't really touched on at the moment, such as our vagus nerve stimulator or the Kefali TENS machine, really probably warrant a discussion with the neurologist. CGRPs can only be initiated by a neurologist. What we would hope is that GPs feel more confident in starting the prevention process. There's a great chapter on this in therapeutic guidelines, which has been led by our now president-elect of the Australian New Zealand Headache Society, Dr. Elspeth Hutton, who runs the headache clinic at the Alfred Hospital. So there's a guide to a lot of the things that I've just spoken actually in therapeutic guidelines. And we would hope that GPs can start that process so that by the time patients are getting to us, they've gone through first and second and third line therapy and we can come in and go, okay, you failed your first three. Let's talk about the things that specialists need to initiate like Botox, CGRP. Now, you, you mentioned something quite exciting. So I'm, I'm looking at the roles of um, other sorts of um, prevention, not just drugs, um, surgery or the nerve stimulators. Uh, what's, what exists out there? So the two devices that I would encounter most commonly at the moment are the Kefali TENS machine. So if you picture Wonder Woman with her little headband, it kind of looks like that. And it, it really works as a TENS machine and can be quite effective in both migraine prevention and in migraine attack therapy. So it's got three settings to it. It's got a relaxation setting. It's got a um, attack setting and it's got a prevention set setting. So you can use it every day as a prevention, and then you can pop it on again when you have an attack. So this is great for people who have difficulty tolerating medications, who really don't like the thought of medications, or who have polypharmacy from other comorbidities where it makes it really difficult to add in medication um, for them. So that's one thing. We also have vagal nerve stimulators available now. So the um, Gamma Core Sapphire has been approved in Australia. And that's also got some great evidence around um, helping with, with migraine. So there are, there's more than just the drugs available now, which is giving our patients with migraine so much more scope to, again, individualise their therapy. You kind of just touch on exercise. How, how important is it? I think it's really essential. And uh, with my stroke <laughs> physician hat on rather than my headache physician hat, you know, anything more than um, 7,000 steps a day is actually going to decrease your risk of mortality mm. if you're, you know, 30 to 50 year old, uh, which is where a lot of our patients with migraine are. So getting out there and walking is a great start. But it, I think it's more than just that. We, we know there's a lot of beneficial effects of gentle exercise in migraine. It's about striking that balance between exercise exacerbating my migraine. But if we get the migraine under better control, people can exercise and that then feeds into being a preventative strategy. Mm. I think it also feeds into addressing stress and anxiety. And we know that there are a lot of beneficial effects of people exercising and having a reduction in anxiety. So again, it, it's sometimes it's a tricky one 
for people to get started with exercising and build it as a habit rather than, an, oh, I've got to go and do my workout at the gym. You know, exercise can be going for a brisk walk around the block. Tell me about the role of meditation in mindfulness. Again, a lot of emerging evidence about the importance of this. My experience is that it needs to be tailored to the individual. A lot of people who are super stressed are going to find it really difficult to start that. <laughs> and it's sort of, you need to try it to realize that it's going to work for you or not and be open to giving it a go. And some people are really open to that and other people are not. Mm. And I do see it again as one of the, the elements that's there to individualize. I will talk to the majority of patients about it. Often I'll, I'll mention it even to the ones who I think may not be open to it because you never know until you put it out there. Um, there are a lot of different strategies around it. Sometimes if people have a lot of anxiety, I might refer them to a psychologist who has expertise in also teaching mindfulness strategies. Other people, you can just sort of let the, them Google away and, and find things. Mm -hmm. But certainly meditation has really significant benefits in helping people to, to cope with their migraine as well, but it's not easy. Mm. And I think that that's an important thing when you're talking to people about mindfulness or meditation, that it's not a skill that you're just going to pick up straight away. And if you start with three minutes a day, five minutes a day, that's great. And there's a lot of apps that are out there now and that can be really helpful as well. Lauren, you touch on medications that help. Are there medications that GPs ought to avoid in patients who get migraines? And what about the patients who actually probably drinks too much alcohol? We like to avoid the opioids. I think that's the, the big one that we really need to be really conscious of. And there's also the risk of medication overuse. Mm -hmm. There are some data to suggest that even a few doses of opioids can increase the, the risk of episodic migraine becoming chronic migraine. And certainly they're not targeted to the mechanism of migraine. They might temporarily help, but much more likely to end up with medication overuse. So wherever possible, we, we try to avoid anything that's opioid containing or codeine containing. We, we recognize that there are some people where that's all that they have ever known that will help them. And that in some situations that just may be necessary, but certainly avoiding opioids. Um, we have seen in medication overuse that starting a CGRP monoclonal antibody can actually help to treat medication overuse headache. And that's really anything more than uh, 10 to 15 days out of a month of simple analgesia, you're going to be at risk of, of medication overuse. So, um, and I think if you, if you think about the fact that migraine has a vasodilation component and neuroinflammation component mm -hmm. opioids aren't going to treat no. any of that so it doesn't make sense mechanistically to be using opioids either and the question was about uh, alcohol yes yeah, so alcohol i i will usually always inquire about alcohol as part of my dehydration questioning as well i'll often put caffeine and alcohol and dehydration into one together and then I usually bring it back to people around current guidelines around safe alcohol consumption, more around the fact in migraine that it's going to be dehydrating than, than anything else. I mean, there's a, a lot of, you know, does red wine trigger it in some people, red wine will, some people it's white wine, some people it's just the, the dehydration component. But more than it being safe alcohol levels, 
I, I don't sort of say avoid all alcohol. It again comes down to that individualization. I'd just like to just summarize your approach in the sense that it is so practical. It's so easy for GPs to, to understand that there are many non-pharmacological uh, strategies that we can employ. And also keep in mind that those special medications uh, need to have, well, the patients fail three agents. So we actually have the license to, to try three before we fail and, and refer on. Are there other times when early referral is actually a good idea? I think if you're concerned, if you're not sure, you're not sure that the diagnosis is actually migraine or nothing seems to work, the patient's getting really disheartened, sometimes then bringing the, G, the specialist into part of the GP patient care team. I think can provide a little bit of reassurance to the patient and reassurance to the GP that no, you are on the right track um, and that this we just have to give this time. The problem with a lot of the preventers is that they can take up to two to three months to start to work and there can be a tendency to go, oh, well, it's three weeks later, nothing's working, we'll switch to the next one. You do need to give them time and I think a headache diary can be really helpful in that context as well. Um, and a patient who comes to the specialist with their headache diary, that's like, that's our gold. We love that. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, that's great. But I think refer early if you're not sure, or if there are any of those red flag symptoms, you know, the patient's had new onset after the age of 50, or there's some, there's some increasing frequency, increasing severity. There's a new pattern to their migraine that doesn't make sense. Hmm. That would be when we would be, be keen to get involved. Uh, and Lauren, thank you for telling us about the devices and the medications that we now have to prevent uh, migraines. What's coming up in the future? So we're awaiting the arrival of the G-Pants. So these are currently available in America and these are small molecules that again work at the CGRP level, but these actually block the CGRP um, receptor. So they block the receptor. So they're a small molecule and they can actually be used as both a preventer and an abortive therapy and attack therapy. So we are hoping that they will uh, hit Australia shortly. And then obviously they have to go through TGA and uh, PBAC submissions, but they're, they're probably the most exciting thing on the horizon for migraine at the moment. What do you call it again? G-pants. How do you spell it? G-P-A-N-T-S. G-pants. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Small, oh, small molecule CGRP receptor blockers. Okay. What an exciting time for you. Yes. <laughs> What's the time frame? We hope that we'll start the process maybe within the next 12 months, that these things always take longer than you hope and or anticipate. That's really, really exciting. In, in summarising then, Lauren, what are your final and key messages to our GP listeners? I think understanding that migraine is more than just a headache is probably one of the most important things that your patients will want to hear from you and helping them navigate the stigma that goes through that. So don't underestimate what a, a kind listening ear can do in terms of migraine treatment and prevention, but then really treating early. Anything more than four or five headache days a month is enough to start thinking about preventative strategies and individualising your prevention to that person as an individual, including both non-pharmacological and pharmacological approaches. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing all the knowledge with us. Thank you for your time. 
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.